My conversation today will be with Senator Hob Bryan, who represents Mississippi Senate District 7. Hob Bryan has served in the Mississippi Senate since 1984. That is coincidentally the same year that Representative Steve Holland assumed his office over at the Mississippi Capitol. Hob and I will be discussing primarily the Mississippi Adequate Education Program, which is the mechanism through which public education, K-12 through education, is funded in the state of Mississippi. And we'll be talking about recent efforts from the Republican leadership to scrap that formula in favor of a new formula, which would uh, essentially allow the leadership to decide what amount of funding they want to uh, spend on K-12 through education rather than the current formula, MAEP, which produces a result which increases every year. Senator Hob Bryan is uh, another unique individual. He's from the northeast part of the state. I think it's Monroe County that he hails from. Uh, he is an attorney, and he is, I would say, considered by most to be one of the more cerebral members of the Mississippi legislature. However, uh, Hobb can become very agitated, and at times he can be, um, I think it would be fair to say he can be hard to deal with for some. I've never had that problem personally, but I know a lot of other folks have, have made that comment about him. Hobb is very focused on the best policy results for the citizens of Mississippi, and the, the things that anger him have to do with uh, folks pushing policy that would not have a benefit for the state of Mississippi or, in fact, have a detriment, such as uh, two years ago when we passed a massive tax break for out-of-state corporations. Uh, at the same time, we were having difficulty funding the basic services of government, such as roads and bridges. Hobb can be considered an expert on many different areas of policy within the state, but uh, I think that because he was one of the authors of the landmark education funding legislation, that he is certainly considered to be the foremost expert on school funding in the state of Mississippi. You listen for the part of the conversation with Senator Bryan in which he describes the EdBuild proposal. EdBuild is a New Jersey outfit that was hired by the legislative leadership here in Mississippi to come down and uh, study our system of education funding and develop a proposal to change that process. At first, EdBuild and the existence of the contract with EdBuild was not disclosed to the public. There was a, a brief skirmish between the leadership and the press over that. Then the contract was disclosed, but EdBuild met only in private with leadership um, and a, a hand-picked few of legislators. As Democrats in the House of Representatives or Democrats in the Senate, we were not allowed to meet with the representatives from EdBuild. The first year did not produce a bill. Uh, only their proposal, only this last year, the second year uh, of discussions on changing the school funding formula, did Ed Build's proposal uh, result in an actual bill, and uh, we were allowed one meeting with the representatives of Ed Build so that we could ask questions of their proposal and of the bill that resulted from their proposal. Uh, you will hear the frustration in Senator Bryan's voice as he describes uh, how the process was not open to the public and folks were not allowed to participate and give input uh, or make comments or suggestions. Uh, I 
appreciate you being here with me today. This um, this should be painless and, and not too time-consuming. Uh, what is your Senate district? I represent Senate District 7. I live in Amory, and the Senate district I represent includes most of Monroe County, which is my home county, a bit of south of Wamba County, which is south of Fulton, and then about a third of the district's in Lee County, and it actually goes into parts of the city of Tupelo. Where are you from originally? Amory. Did you go to Amory High School? I did. I finished in 1970. Now, something tells me that you did not go to college and law school in Mississippi. Am I right about that? I went to Mississippi State, and I finished in 1974, and then I went to law school at the University of Virginia and Ah, finished there in 77. Um, And so do you get back to Charlottesville very often? Yes, it's a cult. I don't know if you know anyone else that went to Virginia, but it's it's more easily understood if you just think of it as a cult, and that explains so much. Very good. So um, obviously you've been in the Senate for a few years. How long have you served? Uh, this is my 35th term. As I tell people, when I was elected, I had a little bit of hair and a little bit of sense, and I've lost all my hair, and I've lost all my sense. Now, there are those who would disagree been, with the latter. I've been there 35 years. <laughs> There's a reason. There's a reason I'm this one. So what do you do in life when you're not being a Mississippi senator? I sue people. Uh, you're a sue lawyer, as our <laughs> mutual friend Terry Brown used to call us. I have a uh, small law practice in a small town, and uh, – do things that small-town lawyers do. Well, let me take you way back 35 years ago when you first got elected to the Mississippi Senate. Who was the lieutenant governor then? Brad Dye. And what was it like uh, being a young Mississippi state senator back then? Uh, The greatest shock to me was how small-D democratic the Senate was and the fact that I had some part on the program and that, you know, I I got to participate even as someone who had just been elected. Um, I learned after I got elected that Brad had a great deal to do with making the Senate a more democratic institution. Um, when, When he was elected, I'm told that Senator Bodron who was chairman of finance, and Senator Bergen, who was chairman of uh, appropriations, had undue influence over the Senate. And as you know, there, there are deadlines to, to pass bills. There's, yeah, exactly, everything we do in the legislature is driven by a deadline. There's a deadline for a bill to get out of committee, a bill to pass on the floor. So there are separate deadlines for appropriation bills and finance bills and for general bills. The state constitution says appropriation bills and finance bills take precedent on the calendar. So I'm told there was a practice of uh, Senator Bodron and Senator Bergen reporting out large numbers of appropriations and finance finance bills. And then as the deadline approached for general bills, they would start taking up those bills, which had the effect of killing the general calendar. <clears throat> and Brad more or less said, we're not going to do that anymore. If you want to kill a bill, you kill it in committee. If it gets out of committee, we're either going to vote on it on the floor or we're going to adjourn with a roll call. And we're not going to take up the appropriation and finance bill. So that's one of the changes he made. So just for people who are listening and may not be as familiar with the process as, as you normal and I, people. Yeah, Normal people. That's, that's right. That's who we're talking to. Um, a, a finance bill uh, raises money. Uh, or an it, appropriation bill spends money. Yes. That's a very simplified explanation. Would you agree? It, it is, but in our world, 
a, a finance bill or a revenue bill or whatever takes on an awful lot of legislation which has revenue as a um, – it, it's not like it's a huge tax bill. There are just a lot of regulatory bills and all that are revenue bills and go through for that reason. So because they have a it, revenue feature. It's included. sort of a broad – Category. Okay. Uh, but those bills are obviously important and they, they deserve some priority. But what you're saying is they were essentially handling those bills to the exclusion of other general legislation which they would let die on the calendar? Yeah. The, the senators – it was explained to me, Senator Bodron and Senator uh, Bergen uh, would call up those bills and use them for the purpose of killing other legislation. But the other, the other thing that Brad – did, which I think is dramatically different, is, is the lieutenant governor appointed the committees. Obviously, he appointed committee chairs in whom he had confidence. Uh, I remember there was a headline in the Clarion Ledger that said Brad Dye had appointed his allies to uh, major chairmanships. And uh, Ray Mabus, who was, I think, in the either auditor or governor at the time, said, well, what a shock. I was expecting him to appoint his enemies to <laughs> major chairmanships. But, I mean, obviously, the major chairs were were friendly toward the lieutenant governor, but he didn't interfere with stuff. I mean, maybe two or three times a year, there'd be some piece of legislation that the lieutenant governor would get involved in. But generally speaking, his, go talk to the chairman, go talk to the chairman. The chairman ran the committees. Bills were assigned appropriately to committees. And as you know, that's probably the greatest difference between the the legislature operates now and that the speaker and the lieutenant governor tend to make every decision and expect the committees to ratify the decisions they've already made. And that that was just unheard of when I was elected. Well, and I want to talk a little more about that in just a second. But let's go just, uh, you know, let's pretend we're talking to uh, folks who, again, don't have uh, any knowledge about how the legislative process works in Mississippi. In other words, normal people. Um, And the the process you were describing uh, included a lot of – power vested in the committee chairman. That's they, correct. There was some deference to the committee chairman. And the committee chairman can decide uh, what bill they would like to bring up for a vote in their committee or w- which bills they would like to kill by what we call a pocket veto. And the bills that they brought up and passed uh, then went on to a, a calendar. And then there's a deadline to take those bills off the calendar. And what you described earlier was that a lot of those bills died on the calendar because of the um, the, the methods that was being that were being employed by the two chairmen of finance and uh, appropriations. Yeah, and I think one of the, the major things that occurred back then is you had meaningful committee meetings, and the committees would have hearings. You'd debate legislation, and as you know, concepts keep coming up year after year in different forms. Uh, but the individual members had familiarity with various public policy issues simply because they were debated hour after hour in committee. And uh, as I like to say, you you had to listen to people who disagreed with you. And then people who disagreed with you had to listen to you tell them why they were wrong. And it's that interchange of ideas, that discussion, that argument about public policy, which is sort of what our whole system's based on. And that's, that's how we got... Uh, good policy, and, and it's disturbing that doesn't occur anymore. So let's talk for a minute about that. Um, so that 35 years ago, you described how it was, and it was little d democratic, as we all believe the system should be. Um, how can you – how does that compare with today's world under the Mississippi Capitol Dome? 
Well, practically all decisions are made by the lieutenant governor and by the speaker, and they expect the members of the legislature to ratify them, particularly uh, the members of the Republican Party. I'm, I'm told that there are caucuses of the Republicans in the House, and they have this secret meeting and decide what they're going to do. And then after they've had their secret meeting, the legislative process is just to ratify that. Um, Yeah, we hear that there's a sort of a 50-vote requirement within the House Republican caucus, something like the Hastert rule that we hear about that's employed in Washington where you have to have a majority of the majority before they bring anything out to the floor. Is there something similar that goes on in the Senate? Uh, I don't know that it's quite that formal. I think it's more a pronouncement from the lieutenant governor than involving members in a meeting. But but it's interesting that you mentioned these Republican caucus meetings and this 50-vote requirement. I keep hearing this all the time. And for the life of me, I don't understand why that's not a news story, but whatever. Well, maybe it will be if someone hears this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so, so back in that time uh, when you first got elected and began serving as a senator, would that have been the early 1980s? I was elected in 83 and took office in 84. Okay. So at that time, uh, how was the legislature treating public education? Well, let me let me just say briefly, uh, there were two major things that occurred at that time. Uh, one of them is education, but the other was a highway program. You know, we enacted a statewide highway program. That highway program was driven by Billy McCoy and John David Pennebaker, who are the chairman uh, and vice chairman of the House Transportation Committee, highways, whatever the term is. And that came out of the legislature. They were they were on that committee. They took their, their uh, uh, committee chairmanships uh, seriously. There was a need for roads, and they're the ones that started what later became the four-lane highway program. Uh, by the same token, the uh, public education changes. Uh, well, before we get there, can I interrupt uh, you? Sure. That highway patrol uh, program that you just described, how was it funded? It was funded through taxes. Taxes. <laughs> raised, now, that's a dirty word. They raised and, – and let me say at that time, uh, there were practically no cars that operated with any fuel other than gasoline. And this was in the era when the gasoline tax was – a perfectly sensible way to fund public roads, and that's basically what they did. They raised taxes in order to have more money with which to build roads. And when you invest in infrastructure, you don't know what what particularly is going to happen down the road, but it seems to me that's a core function of government. When, when, when what was in Highway 78, which is now Interstate 22, was four-laned, Almost, though not quite, to interstate standards. But it's a fully controlled access four-lane road, which went from Fulton to Tupelo to New Albany to Holly Springs. is basically going from Birmingham to Memphis. Yeah, these places are up in the northeast part of the That's right. state of Mississippi. And when that, when that road was built in four-lane, nobody had it anywhere in the back of his mind that an automobile company from Japan – would come out in the red clay hills out in the middle of nowhere and level those hills and put in an automobile manufacturing plant. But had it not been for that road built to interstate specifications, the Toyota plant would never have located there because they required actually an interstate, which is how we got 
the road designated as Interstate 22, they required uh, interstate type highway. And, of course, you're referring to the Toyota plant at Blue Springs, Mississippi, right? right? And I, I just think one of the tragedies of what's going on now in the legislature is our failure to take care of basic infrastructure needs, to take care of building and maintaining four-lane highways, let alone our water and sewer uh, problems, which are a problem all over the state. Uh, we desperately need to be investing in these things and, and maintaining them and taking care of them for future generations, and we're not doing it. But um, the highway program was generated by the legislature. All right. So, when, I, In fact, Bill Elaine vetoed it, and the legislature overrode his veto by two-thirds vote in both chambers. Surely there were hundreds of thousands of people who descended upon the Capitol with pitchforks and torches to protest the uh, the raising of a gasoline tax to fund roads and bridges, right? Well, you know, I don't understand this obsession about cutting taxes, which apparently has just uh, overtaken all other public policy issues. It's going to take a generation to recover from the tax cuts that have been passed this year. But when you when you talk about infrastructure, you talk about roads, water, sewer, those things are investments that the government has to make. The government has to build roads. It's 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 public infrastructure, it's public works for the public. And and you do that through taxes. And I I, I just it's very disturbing and to see what's going on now where there's apparently this huge effort to pretend to have a road program but to pass legislation after legislation without any real money in it. That's <laughs> just – it's sad. Well, let's uh, let's move from roads for just a moment to uh, where we stood in 1983 or, or the early 1980s, 82, 83 on public education in Mississippi. What was, what was the legislature doing about funding public education back then? Well, again – this was driven by Ronnie Musgrove, who was chairman of the Senate Education Committee. Again, it's a chairman of a committee taking seriously uh, his responsibilities as chair and, and developing uh, a solution for the problems that we had. There were there were two basic uh, concerns about uh, public school finance. Historically, public schools have been financed. Uh, to a large degree by the property tax, which means as you go from district to district, the amount of property you have to tax varies greatly. Um, Why is that? Well, in, if Does it have to do with geographic size of the county or does it have to do with value or has, some of both? It has to do with property wealth. One of the, one of the examples that I've somewhat have heard is uh, – the Mountain Brook, Birmingham schools. Mountain Brook is a very affluent suburb of Birmingham. And in their district, they have very expensive homes. They have a reasonable amount of retail there. And so when Mountain Brook goes out and levies taxes, they get a great deal of money per student. So the, the local tax dollars in Mountain Brook uh, provide a, a, a fair amount of money per student. But when you go to Greene County, Alabama, which is in the poorest part of Alabama, it's a rural county. Uh, it's down so, south of Montgomery, Alabama, so I south, think. You know, south and I think a bit west of Montgomery. Uh, there's just nothing there to tax. 
and the people can go out and tax themselves together and when to, I mean tax themselves to death and when they get through doing that when they add up the revenue they just don't have any they're not any expensive homes there to tax but they have children to educate and I think there's an agreement that all children in all school districts should be entitled to a certain level of education. And so what what happened about that time is there were lawsuits that were being brought. And in state after state, uh, 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 school districts such as Greene County would sue and say, we don't have any money, but we're required to educate our children. Uh, Courts do something. And as you know, if courts are presented with a bad enough fact situation, they try to find a remedy. So there were decisions made in state after state. Uh, There was actually a case that was brought in federal court in Texas from uh, San Antonio. And by a five to four decision, I believe, the United States Supreme Court ruled whatever you're doing about education finance it doesn't raise an issue under the United States Constitution. So the litigation shifted to states, and people would would litigate under state constitutions. Basically, in every state, there's some provision about education in a state constitution, and state courts would use that as an opportunity to uh, render decisions. Um, And in many instances, what happened was there was what was called the Robin Hood approach, whether either directly or indirectly, the uh, the state would take money away from the wealthy districts and send it to the poor districts. I always felt that you know there's nothing wrong with Mountain Brook. Those people are not doing anything wrong. Leave the Mountain Brooks of the world alone. Let's help. Let's help Greene County, and you don't have to penalize Mountain Brook to help Greene County. So, but that was the the equity. And there were there were arguments. I remember that no district should be allowed to spend more money on a child than any other district. And I said, well, I've got a great solution for that. Let's just find the worst funded district in the state of Mississippi and confiscate all the money any other district has beyond that. Then you know everybody would be equal. Would be equally poor. So it, after the equity suits, it begin to uh, uh, multiply. Did any of those get filed in Mississippi? Uh, no. Uh, there were um, suits brought on adequacy. And the adequacy argument was we should be entitled to a certain level of education. Every child is entitled to something. You argue forever about what that is, but it's the duty of the state to at least provide that amount of education. Sort of a baseline approach. So, so let me ask you this, and I know I'm interrupting you. I apologize, but you may do uh, that. So, so why no equity suits in Mississippi? Is it because everybody was being funded so inadequately that they didn't bother with the equity argument? I think there are several reasons. Number one, these were things that sort of cropped up in first one state then another. Um, Secondly, historically, Mississippi has funded. More money, a bigger percentage of public education at the state level than most states do. So there clearly were property disparities, but they weren't as great in Mississippi as they were in some other states because you had, in relative terms, a, a, a larger percentage of money coming from the state. And I think also uh, one of the reasons was uh, 
then Senator Musgrove, later Governor Musgrove, um, got involved in this early enough in the process that there was an effort to come up with a legislative remedy. And so that's where the energy went. So when would you estimate or do you know with specificity when that effort began, uh, when, when uh, Senator Musgrove or Chairman Musgrove, I presume, began that process? Well, you know, all these years run together. Young man, you'll get old too and you, you won't be able to remember. Uh, but um, let me count for you. In the early 90s, um, uh, Governor Musgrove was elected – in 88, I believe, and he was chairman of uh, education in 92, I believe. Uh, and so it was it was in the early 90s that the legislature began to somewhat formally study this. And the process went on for uh, a couple of years. Um, can you describe were, that a bit? There were committee meetings. Uh, we had people come talk to the committee about this. And ultimately, we had uh, meetings where we would sit around and discuss sort of what we've discussed. And we looked at the, the funding breakdown by district and observed that there were some property-poor districts and some property-rich districts. And, you know, you had uh, – School superintendents, the Superintendents Association, people from the State Department of Education. And I think everybody that was involved had a, a general consensus that we were not doing right by the property poor districts and something needed to be done. Was there ample opportunity afforded for all the stakeholders to come into these meetings and be heard and, and present their own ideas and their opinions? Yeah, it was a it was a completely open process and there was constant communication. I would say uh, through the superintendents association, they would report back to the individual superintendents all over the state. Individual superintendents would on occasion come wander in and out. Uh, there were people there with the Mississippi Association of Educators, the State Department of Education, just meeting after meeting with a group of people and and everyone was coming from his or her own perspective in some sense. So everyone was aware of how this would affect his or her school district or how it would affect uh, his or her interest. But at the, at the same time, there was an understanding that we needed to do something to solve this problem. So it, 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 it evolved, and what happens when you have a process like that is – folks understand the alternatives that are being considered. And and so there's an understanding of why you would do thing one or thing two or thing three and why other, you know, I think we'd listen to anybody who wanted to talk to us about anything. So we'd, you know, if you had an idea, you're welcome. Um, and so ultimately what emerged was that you have to define adequacy. And why only adequate? Why not? You know, Mississippi exceptional or well, Mississippi top flight or Mississippi gold standard or – Adequacy is a term of art and it has specific 
legal meanings at the time, and the legal meaning of adequacy within the realm of education finance was the level of education that the state was going to guarantee. And we were so concerned with substance that we didn't come up with a fancier term. And I've ever since then heard that adequate is not enough and on and on and on. Well, but we didn't choose adequate because of uh, uh, its dictionary meaning. We chose that because it incorporated a particular legal concept. Well, I want to push you on, on that just a little bit. Is it – am I right that what um, – the, the amount of funding under the Mississippi Adequate Education Program was supposed to be set at a C-level school? Well, it's described in a bunch of different ways, but the the, the basic uh, proposition was the State Board of Education was set up by the Constitution. The voters had recently adopted an appointed State Board of Education, and the State Department of Education was in charge of accreditation, and they had what was standard accreditation, whatever term you want to use. And so this was the um, this was the level of education that the state was requiring that you uh, provide. And so our proposition was our basic funding proposition ought to be tied into that so that the the basic – the core funding for education equals the amount of money you need to provide the, the, the level of education that's being required. Well, that makes sense. And on, on some level, uh, again, people say money uh, – doesn't solve all the problems. That's exactly right. Uh, it costs just as much to hire a bad physics teacher as it costs to hire a good good physics teacher. And so, yes, there are variables that go beyond money. But if you don't have enough money to hire a physics teacher, you're probably not going to have good physics classes. And so, <clears throat> you, you you look at it, you say, well, you've got to have so many teachers. We're going to have classes of a certain size. You've got to have enough teachers to uh, teach those classes. You've got to have enough money to pay utility bills and, and, and on and on. So what, what we did at the time was we had two approaches. We set up a theoretical school district. and said, let's just, on paper, set up a school district, a reasonable amount of students, or, you know, reasonable utility expenses and all, how much does that come out to? And then what we started trying to do and what we've done ever since, and people just get twisted and turned and tied in knots over the mechanics of this, it all basically comes to the same point. And there's, let's just look at some ordinary districts, some remarkable districts, un, unremarkable districts, where expenses are neither really high or really low. Let's just see out there in the real world what school districts seem to be spending to produce what seems to be a, a decent level of education. Um, strangely enough, when the Ed Bill people showed up, if you looked at their – Let's total, talk for a second about who they are. Oh, they're, <clears throat> the, they're the outfit from New Jersey that came down here recently with their misguided ideas. But they, That would have been in, what, 2000, late 2016 because we saw their product, their initial product in the legislative session in 2017 – but but let me ask you this: back going back in time again to when MAEP was being discussed, and you were looking at um, the you created the the normal unremarkable school district program. I mean, idea. Uh, did you have 
consultant from New Jersey or somewhere else no, that our, helped our you? Our consultants put that came from Colorado, <laughs> but uh, they sat down in public, and everything they did was in public, and people uh, uh, listened to what they had to say, and they actually listened to folks from Mississippi and took into account some of our considerations. But I, I want to say that the the total dollar amount that the adequate education program requires is not that different from the total dollar amount that the New Jersey people came up with. And so there's just endless discussion about how you measure this and how you measure that. And you know, it goes on and on. We'll change it and we'll, we'll choose these school districts or we'll choose those school districts. And over and over again, all these changes, you keep coming out to roughly the same dollar amount because if you think about it, you're trying to employ teachers, you're trying to pay utility bills, you're trying to have you some principals and superintendents. And once you get rid of the outlying outliers, it, it, it's a fairly uh, – uh, there's much more consensus about that amount. And the but, question again is if you look at every school district in the state of Mississippi, how much does it cost to educate every child uh, and – provide every child with the level of education which we have adopted for accreditation purposes, a standard accreditation, whatever you want to call it. And that, that dollar amount doesn't vary that much. Let, let me say also that we're talking about the basic funding formula. There's other means of revenue, but that we're going to talk about that later. Well, you've, you've mentioned Ed Bill. We talked just briefly about them, um, and then I think they came on in late 2016. What's your understanding of what prompted the speaker and the lieutenant governor to bring on Ed Bill and consider a rewrite of the formula that we've been using for approximately 20 years? Well, what, what happened was after the formula was adopted, uh, we basically – this is basically the way the formula works. There's some twists, but this is basically – MAEP? MAEP. Okay. Uh, each district would levy 28 mills. We, well, first of all, we'd compute how much money – your district needs. You've got we come up with a, a per student cost. Generally, you've got you multiply the the per student cost by average daily attendance, and you get a dollar amount that each district needs. Uh, the local district is required to levy twenty eight mills of taxes, and the state sends you a check for the difference between twenty eight mills and what you need. Almost every district in the state was levying 28 mills. There may have been a couple that were levying 24, but but basically everybody was levying 28 mills. So that was the local district's contribution. And as, as I say, if you have two districts and the numbers show that each of them needs $10 million, one district goes out and levies 28 mills and gets a million dollars from their tax base, the state sends them a check for $9 million. Another district goes out, levies 28 mills, they get $2 million from their tax base, the state sends them a check for $8 million. So for the first 28 mills of, of property taxes, it doesn't matter where you live. We're holding, we're holding you equal for the first 28 mills. But if you want to do more than that, have at it. And if you want to levy 38 mills, you're not penalized any way at all. And those additional 10 mills of taxes go directly to help the school district where you live. And that was an important concept. There also is revenue from uh, 16th section land, Chickasaw Session revenue. Uh, there's some revenue in, in, in some counties from casinos, 
whatever other revenue there is, that doesn't that's over and above the the base amount. Right, and there was a one cent sales tax increase at some point. Then that money was supposed to go to classroom supplies. That would have been the type of outside additional revenue well, you're talking the, about. The one cent sales tax came before the adequate education program, and the one cent sales tax was um, for education, and it had a minor equity feature to it. Uh, it was all rolled in to the MAEP, but over the years, what has happened is well, the MAEP was was to be phased in over six years. It was fully funded through the phase in. It was fully funded the first year, and then we had an economic downturn. So the the formula was not fully funded, but other agencies were also taking a hit. Then, as the economy improved, uh, we started doing better. Started. Uh, trying to fully fund the formula, and then we had another economic downturn. What's different now is that after the economy began to improve, you go back to 2008, 2009, when the economy was really at the lowest level, and compare that to the economy now, this is a normal economy. We're having a bit of a boom and so what's unusual about what's taking place right now is even though the economy is improving, there is no longer even an attempt to fund the formula. Despite Governor Barber signing legislation uh, where we were going to fund the formula, despite statements by now Governor Bryant when he was running that he was promised that we would fund the formula, there's now a suggestion that – and they just don't want to fund the formula. The statute you reference, uh, and I don't have it right here in front of me, but doesn't it use language like the legislature shall fully fund MAEP? Well, the law was on the books, and it, it said that this was the funding level. And I assure you, when we passed it, it never crossed anybody's mind that the formula would not be funded. Um, I think that in bad economic times that uh, sort of thought, well, you might cut back 1% or 2% to get you through a difficult time, but basically... And that's when you're cutting all agencies oh, across yeah, the board to get through the, the difficult cut, economic downturn. Cut, everybody else is getting cut much worse than that. Um, and so when Governor Barber was in office, uh, there, was, uh, there were complaints that the formula was not being funded, so there was this big to-do, and they were going to pass what's now on the books and says in three years we're going to fund this formula. They they put that phrase in, we shall, the legislature shall fund MAEP. It was signed by Governor Barber, and this was supposed to be another commitment to funding the formula. Now, why, why is it important that they put that language in that you just referenced? We sh- the legislature shall fully fund MAEP. Well, there's been a, a, a until very recently, there's been a almost universal notion that the formula should be funded and was only not being funded because of bad economic times. And the phrase shall was intended to have some sort of redress if the legislature did not fund the formula. It was the, sort of a guarantee from the legislature. Well, uh, as your, a lawyer – your, your state Supreme Court has recently ruled that it <laughs> – uh, that shall doesn't mean shall any longer. Well, they, they've ruled that uh, Mississippi, shall means may. You, you, you can't expect this court to interpret the law or the Constitution. Uh, well, that's um, I have 
I have some concerns about some recent opinions by your state Supreme Court. But. Well, let's not go there today. We'll, that's, we'll <laughs> save that for another conversation that we'll have. Yes, so, yes. so at any rate, I think the point you're making is that at least as recently as the Governor Barber administration, uh, there was bipartisan support for full funding of our adequate education program, MAEP. There was bipartisan. This, this proposition was not bipartisan. It was nonpartisan. It never crossed anybody's mind that there was any partisan uh, uh, element to this. Uh, when, the, when the legislation was passed, Governor Fordyce vetoed it. We overrode the veto by greater than two-thirds in both chambers. There were plenty of Republicans voting to override the governor's veto, and these were Republicans voting to override a veto of the first Republican governor in 100 years. And and there was overwhelming bipartisan support. Governor Barber himself signed the statute that said the formula shall be funded. I mean, this this partisan spin on this is a very recent development, and it's brought about by what I consider to be the radical faction of the Republican Party, which currently has control of the legislative process. I think they're not representative of Republicans as a whole. So that brings us forward to late 2016. How did you hear about the uh, hiring of Ed Bild by the lieutenant governor who presides over the Senate and the speaker who presides over the House? Well, I, I read about it in the paper. And um, I think it's important that every time the speaker, who is the author of this new funding formula, discusses this proposition, he starts out by explaining that the state of Mississippi just can't afford to spend all this money on public education. And we've just got to stop spending so much money on public education. And, and he goes on at length. The purpose, the purpose of revising the formula was to take off the books a formula which produced a certain level of education, which by definition is what we're requiring the schools to do and replace it by a formula, which is I like to phrase it, says the schools are entitled to the amount of money Philip Gunn says they can have regardless of what they need. Let me revisit for just a moment how we all learned about EdBuild. Um, I too read about it in the newspaper, and the, the some of the first articles I read addressed the fact that they, uh, the, the reporters had requested a copy of the Ed Bill contract and were told by the Speaker and the Lieutenant Governor's office that they weren't going to produce that. Do you recall that? Yes, and it was after a great deal of public pressure. They finally made the contract public. But I think that's symbolic of everything about this proposal. It is not within them to do anything in public and be upfront about it. This is all this weird cloak and dagger stuff and secret meetings and it just it's disturbing. And so, ultimately <clears throat> ultimately what killed the bill was number one, the merits of the legislation. It didn't have any. And number two, the fact that they had been so secretive about everything that there was a lot of opposition and they, they didn't understand it and they couldn't explain it. And the reason they didn't understand it and couldn't explain it is they never engaged in that open public debate where the people who don't like what you're doing tell you everything that's wrong and you have to think about it. So there's some value in listening to dissenters. Well, you know, I can go on at length about this, <laughs> but that is the whole basis of our democracy. It's people sitting around 
discussing politics, discussing public policy, and debating it, listening to everybody. And, and you know, if is it okay if we mention that you're a lawyer? Absolutely. If you're getting ready to argue an important case, the one thing you want is to find somebody who will listen to your argument and tell you every single thing you're doing wrong. And lawyers rehearse their arguments in front of other lawyers for the purpose of having somebody tear them apart and tell them everything they're doing wrong so they can think about what what answers they're going to have for that. Well, and it's also smart politics if you are concerned that the number of votes are close enough so that you might have to sway some votes uh, in the other party. Uh, but if you have super majorities, that whole process you just described, listening to dissent and, and having your proposals picked apart, is not as important. Would you agree with that? I think that the the people running the legislature feel that it's not important. But if I had 80% of the votes in the legislature, I would certainly want to hear what the other 20% of the people had to say because, number one, I've never taken the position that I'm right about everything. And and secondly, if you, if you listen to other folks, A, uh, you can find out some mistakes that you're making. They'll help you not make mistakes. And, and B, generally with anything that's a complex piece of legislation, you can do something here, yonder, and there to include other points of view. I mean, why, why wouldn't you want everybody to feel that he or she had at least some impact and that he or she was listened to? I, I just do not... This this whole authoritarian approach is just very disturbing. Well, I mean, what you espouse sounds like some sort of Pollyanna theory that they might teach at a liberal northeastern college like UVA. Yeah, what I'm describing is the way your state legislature worked <laughs> until about ten years ago. I mean, and, and seriously, I mean, I, I keep saying to people, look, <laughs> there's never been uh, some sort of perfect legislature down here. We've never had a legislature full of saints and Sunday school teachers, and that's not the way the world works. No, and and yes, people have always been worried about reelection and been worried about campaign contributions and this, that, and the other thing. But it was on such a different level in such a different degree. And I would say for the first 20 years that I was here, the arguments were not about what can we pressure you to do, but they were about what was good public policy. By the way, I hear comments about features of the MAEP that were put in in order to get votes. And I'm very frustrated because I was there and I know we didn't do anything to get votes. We developed a formula which was fair, and we were concerned about being fair with every school district, regardless of how the representatives of that school district were going to vote. We were trying to help the school kids. We wanted to educate the children. If they had sent misguided legislators down here, that's not the fault of the children. So our our attempt was just to put together something that was a a good, fair policy that improved the the, uh, level of funding that uh, helped alleviate some of the inequities and was a 
a good deal for everybody. I, I think we did that. That's why we got two-thirds in both chambers. So where we ended up this year is— Oh, back to it. Yeah, let, let's, okay. so let's walk through shifting, this. Shifting back, <laughs> there was a one-hour um, public presentation with slideshows and, you know, the what are those things where you— PowerPoints, all of this stuff, and they had they had— uh, a handout to go with it. But, and I think this is telling. The The presentation was on the afternoon, Monday afternoon, uh, which was Martin Luther King Day. Uh, there are events all over the state for Martin Luther King Day. It is of some importance to all of us it is of particular importance to uh, African Americans. And I promise you, nobody was trying to be mean by scheduling this presentation on that particular day. But the people calling the shots were so isolated and so clueless that in their world, having something on the afternoon of, of Martin Luther King's birthday uh, didn't strike them as being a big deal. And there were colleagues who had uh, matters to attend to in their districts, and it was difficult for them to do that and get down there. And I, I just think that's representative of everything. Well, and when it's you just, it's the echo chamber, it's being out of touch with the real world. And so, anyway, that you, they you had couple, a one hour presentation. You couple that type of tone deafness. With yeah, what, that word, uh, what, that what word. a lot of people who serve in the legislature feel like is a is a very small group of people making decisions and then sort of ramming them through, and then you get um, sort of backlash. Even if the proposal might be a very good proposal, people tend to uh, to to be uh, to oppose it because of the way it's handled. Is I, I that, think I think tone right? deaf is the word I was yeah. looking for. But again, we had this one hour presentation, and that was it, and. Um, then they all went and hid. But one and we the, never saw a bill, right, one of, one in of the 17. Things, one of the things that we found out from that presentation is that the New Jersey model was going to save money at the state level by forcing local districts to increase property taxes. And one of the one of the policies that we had, and I think this is a policy that a number of us care about, is we wish to hold down property taxes back home. Um, there are three million people in this state. If we collect property taxes, sales taxes, or income taxes, they're all going to come from the three million people. <laughs> you know? And so there's, there's this argument, well, the state's doing more than it should. Well, if, if, if as a matter of public policy, we wish to rely more on income tax and sales tax than the property tax, I think that's a good thing. And, and also I think because prop, sales tax and income tax comes into the state, then you're able to collect that from the state as a whole and send that tax money back to where the students are so that it helps alleviate the inequity that comes about when you have over-reliance on property taxes. But the core, one of the core features of the New Jersey proposition was to uh, force local districts 
to increase their property taxes. And so, so we learned these things about the proposal in the 2017 legislative session. We're expecting a bill to be filed, which is, of course, the way you would take the proposal and turn it into legislation through enacting, passing a bill and enacting law. And we never see a bill from either the House or the Senate, and we adjourn sine die, which uh, to you normal people means thank God we get to go home. Uh, uh, all of us feel that way about that. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then so we're, we're gone without ever seeing any proposed legislation on the Ed Bill proposal. And, what and happens – But I would, I would just say the reason for that is once people got even this brief view at what they were up to, school districts all over the state just uh, – were all tore up about it because, A, they couldn't figure out all the moving parts, but, B, what they could tell is this is an attempt to take reduce our state money, which will force us to increase ad valorem taxes. And, of course, the locals didn't like that. That's right. So um, when we leave in the session, we leave in sometime in April normally, um, early April, late March. Uh, then you have approximately seven months before you – get ready to come back to the next legislative session, which would be the 2018 session. In that seven or eight months, are you aware of any hearings or meetings or discussions that were held on the Ed Bill proposal and how uh, they might turn that into law? No, and that's that's another thing that uh, I sort of assumed would take place is now that we finally too. extracted from this New Jersey operation what they're trying to do during this eight-month period – We'll start having public meetings and discussions about it, and we'll figure out what they're up to. But not a word was spoken. So <laughs> it's we amazing. Yeah, they came back with the same cloak and dagger operation in this session. Well, with one difference, um, I was, as the leader of the House Minority a Minority Caucus, allowed to meet with Rebecca Sebelia, who ends up being a very nice person. And uh, and a couple of folks from her organization, Ed Bill. So my caucus was afforded an opportunity to meet with them, which I had been denied previously when I requested that. And and she explained um, the nuts and bolts of her proposal. Then we learned about 48 hours later that the bill that the speaker would be offering did not incorporate all the terms of the Ed Bill proposal. Yeah, Can and, you speak and, to that? Of course, it's it's just it's it's as dysfunctional to think that. Um, or a couple of meetings uh, with with the Democratic caucus. And again, I, for the life of me, don't understand why we have to have separate meetings with the Democrats and the Republicans. It's an education bill. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in favor of educating Democrats, Republicans, and everybody in between. Uh, but um, the, the hour-long meetings they want to have here, yonder, and there with legislators are – or specific groups of legislators, are simply no substitute for the long-running public meetings where school superintendents get. The the uh, State Department of Education was completely shut out. You would you would ask you would ask questions, and the State Department of Education couldn't answer them because they didn't know. And at one point during the process, uh, they got uh, the. New Jersey people on the speakerphone and called in like a half dozen state senators and said, okay, sit down in this room, and we've got New Jersey on the other end of the speakerphone. If you have questions, you can ask them. 
Well, okay. So there's nobody in Mississippi that can answer a question. The authors of the bill can't answer the question. The chairman of education can't answer a question. As you know, when it came up in the House and they were debating the bill, every time the someone asked the chairman a question, he said, there's a two-year whole harmless clause. Don't worry. We'll solve the problem. And then somebody said, well, how does the whole harmless clause work with shifting enrollments? And he couldn't even answer how his whole harmless clause worked. It's just... Just vote for it. Just, well, that's a good you, question. As Just you vote know, for it. we have one of the country's best cartoonists located here in Mississippi and Marshall Ramsey. And I think the cartoon that he had that appeared in the Clarion Ledger the next day was one of his best. It had the chairman of education in the pilot seat of a plane that was missing a wing, missing some of the fuselage, and didn't have a, a wheel or something like that. And uh, someone was asking him, "Is it ready?" And, and, and on the side, it was emblazoned, you know, Ed Bill proposal or something like that. And the the steward, the flight attendant, was asking, "Are we ready to, for takeoff?" And he said, "Yeah, we're we're ready. We can we can fix it while in flight or yeah. something along those lines." It was it was perfect, perfectly captured the situation. I'll need to get a copy of that. I can share that with you. Uh, so so, it, but at any rate, we passed it. In the House of Representatives, there were 17 amendments offered on the bill in an attempt to improve various aspects of the bill. Uh, They all failed. They were all offered by Democrats. They all failed by virtually the same vote. And then we send the bill to the Senate. Why don't you tell us what the process was when the bill got to the Senate? Well, I think one of the things to remember is that this this was being driven, I would argue, primarily by the speaker. Uh, He was the author of the bill – but when when the, when the bill got to the Senate, to his credit, the lieutenant governor said that every um, member would know how it would affect his or her school district before we voted on the bill. So we did have produced, uh, I assume by the New Jersey people, uh, a printout showing how calculations worked for every single district. And it became obvious that the data that all of these funding projections were was based on was just bogus. Um, let me let me just give you one example of of a proposition with the bill, uh, which indicates how what a bizarre formula it was. There was an attempt to give additional money to sparsely settled school districts under the theory is if you've got a lot of territory and relatively few students, you need some more money. For the cost of busing students or something? Well, we have a formula. We have a formula that's supposed to take into account uh, the cost of transportation. But the Edville people uh, allocated the same dollar amount for transportation to every single student, uh, which, of course, gives compact school districts the same amount per student as districts who have large ways to travel. But theoretically, I guess that's one of the reasons they're going to do this. The uh, The base student cost that they had was $4,800, and they declared that sparse districts would get 10% more. I believe they arrived at that 10% figure because we have a decimal system. I don't know of any uh, uh, theoretical basis or any real basis for coming up with 10 percent, but that's what New Jersey said. It, it sounds science-y. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they uh, defined a sparse district as a district 
with four students per square mile or fewer. And so if you had four students per square mile, you got a bonus for all, all your students. But if you enrolled one more student, theoretically, then you'd go from 4.0% to 4.01%, and you were no longer a sparse district, and you could lose millions of dollars by en- enrolling a few more students. And there were example after example of districts who were on the on the margin who could either gain or lose by just increasing or decreasing their uh, enrollment. And uh, that's a completely irrational feature. I'm really shocked that these folks from New Jersey, who is, I like to say, you've got more degrees than Fahrenheit and Celsius put together, would come up with a <laughs> proposal like that, which was so obviously bogus. And I remember on one occasion, I actually wound up in a situation with the speaker, and I mentioned that under this proposal, you could enroll one more student and lose hundreds of thousands of dollars, and the speaker said, that's not so. Well, I, I just don't think the speaker understood his own piece of legislation. But um, as members became aware of that and as they saw – for example, they wanted to have additional money for students who were learning English as a second language. If you looked at the way they calculated their uh, formula, Madison County, which has 14,000 students, had zero students who were earning using English, learning English as a second language, which is just laughable on its face. Uh, there are whole, all sorts of districts. Philadelphia, zero English language learners. I think uh, Picayune, zero English language learners. I mean, it was obvious that the data they had based all of their numbers on was just plain wrong. Right. So, we, we know so, that there are a few English learners in a 14,000-student population. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, last time I checked, a couple over in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, but, but, I mean, I, I think that all of this came about because of, of all this secrecy. They had never been in a situation where people could look at that, whereas if they had an open process, you would have phones ringing off the wall from people back home saying, you've got the wrong numbers for my district. Uh, but that didn't happen until right at the end when some of us were able to uh, ferret out some of these weird things that were baked into their proposition. But nevertheless, the bill passes the Senate Education Committee and comes to the floor of the House where it's being debated. The floor of the Senate. I'm sorry, the floor of the Senate. Which is much better than the floor (laughs) of the House, let me tell you. Well, having served in both, I disagree. Um, At any rate, so you have a a vigorous debate on it on the floor. Explain what happened that ultimately doomed the bill. Well, again, I I want to be very clear about this. What doomed the bill was the content of the bill itself. Once members began to understand what the bill actually did, and once people across the state became familiar with what the bill would do, the support for the bill began to unravel. And uh, so when what the this is let's just mention this. This was their this was their proposition. If you will just repeal the adequate education formula and get that off the books because it's creating problems for us. We promise you that six or seven years from now, we'll spend 5% more money on public education than we did last year. 
And not only that, we'll divvy up that money in such a way that a quarter of the school districts in Mississippi will get even less money from the state than they got last year. That's what you have to look forward to seven years down the road. That's the carrot. Well, you know, so so what kind of problems you reference problems it was causing for them what what sort of you, are you talking about political problems well i think that uh members didn't want i don't know that there are any school district in the state that needs to get less money from the state than it's getting now um i think also that the current formula is being underfunded 200 million dollars and this would more or less agree that the current formula would be underfunded more and more and more. So you were basically having a proposition that we're telling the public schools in Mississippi as years go by, you'll be in even worse and worse and worse shape than you are now. And once people fully understood that's what was going on, there's not public support for that. Uh, but but those of us who were trying to uh, uh, fight the bill were encouraged that uh, some of the Democrats that um, we thought might be persuaded to vote for it were not doing that. And we also kept hearing from many Republicans who were going to vote no. And these were not the usual suspects. These are not Republicans who frequently uh, get off the reservation. These were people who've got just pretty much uh, been voting with the leadership on every single roll call, and they're saying, "I'm not going to vote for this." So there was uh, there were um, there was opposition on the floor, but one never knows. And again, the tactics were primarily to pressure people, not to argue that the bill was a good thing so much as to And you mean the leadership tactics. That's what you're referring yeah. to, right? Yeah, but it's, so I, I think that didn't sit well with some members. But the, 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 uh, the chairman called the bill up and explained it, and I went to the podium and moved to recommit the bill, which means to send the bill back to the committee. For further and study, further for consideration. Further study, which meant under our deadlines, it could only be considered again with a two-thirds vote, uh, probably in both chambers. So it, it it was not good for the bill to be recommitted. Uh, technically, there were ways to revive it, but as a practical matter, if that bill went back to committee, it wasn't coming back out. So they threw in the towel on it this year. Uh, we will likely see it next year. Yeah. Out of a 52-member Senate, they were able to generate 21 bill, 21 votes for this bill. And two of those votes were going to vote against it and got intimidated uh, that calendar day to switch their votes. They were glad it was dead. There were 27 no votes, four absentees, and 21 yes votes. And I think what it shows is – the bill has no support. It has no support outside the Capitol Dome. Nobody back home is for this thing. Hob, thank you very much for your time. I know you're a busy man, and I don't know of any person alive or dead who could better explain uh, the two provisions that we were talking about here, the MAEP, Mississippi's Adequate Education Program, and the Ed Bill proposal as um, codified or attempted to be codified in Speaker Gunn's bill. Well, I just I appreciate your having me here. I just want the record to reflect that I'm willing to keep talking. <laughs> but, uh, Thank you, Hop. 